if we live a life of passion, it's a better life. It's a more fulfilled life. It's a life where you can make the most powerful friendships that you can that you'll ever make in your entire life because you share something very important to you in common. And I think in our busy world that we all live in in the world of business, um, it's 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 easy to get caught up in just work, work, work. Um, you know, that's the nature of the times that we live in, but taking time for what you're passionate about, no matter what it might be, even if it's a little bit weird, like for me, the Apollo Lunar Program or the Grateful <laughs> Dead, that really makes strong connections with people and allows you to live a better life. From cave drawings to family histories to stories around the fire, humans crave order among chaos, connection amid isolation. So we tell stories. Our mission at the Storytellers Network is to bring the art of story to the masses. Whether you're in marketing, you're an entrepreneur, or you're developing your own personal brand, telling your story effectively can make the difference between celebrating milestones and collecting unemployment. The Storytellers Network strives to help storytellers tell their stories so you can learn from the best. Now, your host, Dan Moyle. Hey, welcome, storytellers. I'm your host, your guide, your librarian. I'm Dan Moyle, and I love story. And I love sharing the stories of storytellers I admire and some that I'm just getting to know along with you. I believe in the power of story because it connects us. It's what makes us human from culture to business to learning story is critical to our communications and what better way to learn how to do it better than to hear from expert storytellers from all walks of life and before we get into this conversation in particular a nudge to visit the website head to the storytellers network.com for past episodes with amazing storytellers links to resources to help you tell your story better and contact information from me. It's all at the storytellersnetwork.com. Now for the show. He's the only guest to return to the Storytellers Network. In this episode, we get to kick off 2020 with a bang. Season nine authors welcomes the return of David Meerman Scott. David's written 10 books on marketing, sales, and PR, and his 11th published book is just out. And this one's special because he co-wrote it with his daughter, Rako Scott. I can only imagine someday writing with my daughters. Just amazing. I'm so excited that you get to listen to this conversation. In fact, David was my very first guest, the inaugural episode of the Storytellers Network two years ago, exactly. Uh, well, maybe four days ago, two years ago. Anyway, whatever it was, two years ago when I first started the show, David was very gracious, came on the show with no audience, and now he's back to launch this book. David and Rako explore how to turn fans into customers and customers into fans in their book, Fanocracy. So whether you're in marketing, uh, you own a business, or you're a storyteller who wants to learn how to build your own fan base, David and I are here to bring a ton of information and inspiration. So let's get to the stories. So David, welcome back to the Storytellers Network. Uh, the only alumni so far, so you're in. I'm in good company with you. <laughs> I am honored to be the only returning guest so far, but I, my guess is you'll probably have some other people back too. I might have to because I was really interested when when you did say, "Hey, let's talk." I thought, "Boy, this will be fun to go back to our conversation 
Um, so yeah, it might be a whole new, a whole new ball game for me. <laughs> well, what's interesting is that um, I think the world has changed even just a couple of years. Yeah. Um, in a lot of different ways. And the whole idea of storytelling perhaps has even changed. Um, you know, whereas before I was talking a lot about online, a lot about content, um, as I know you do as well. Mm -hmm. um, and those things aren't going away, but I am pretty firmly convinced that in today's polarized world of, um, you know, the political world is so brutally polarized. It's us versus them red versus blue, you know, my guy versus your guy. Um, it's brutal. And then in social networks, I think that there's so many people doubling down on reaching out in inappropriate ways. And, you know, sometimes what feels like a really cool story and you start to engage, it's a freaking bot. <laughs> right. Um, and so I, I'm, you know, I've spent my career talking about online it's not going away it's still fabulous but i think the pendulum has swung too far in that direction of superficial online communications it's swung too far in the direction of of meanness and nastiness mm -hmm. and polarization um uh in the political world and so i think that we're ripe for the pendulum to swing back and a huge part of that is genuine storytelling it really does seem to connect us. I mean, in the hundred some interviews I've had, that seems to be the thread is that stories are powerful because it's what brings humans together. It, it, it's what separates humans from everybody else, everything else. And yeah. it's what brings us together. It's what makes us human, it feels like. Oh, yeah. I think yeah. that's totally right. I think that's totally right. And I think that in many ways we may have, you know, I say we collectively not including you, but the, the whole universe has kind of lost track of that in some ways. Mm -hmm. And there's, I think there's a real opportunity for it to come back um, in, in some very strong and powerful ways. Absolutely. And I love what you said too, David, about yes, online is here and it's here to stay and it can be very powerful and amazing, but we've really kind of forgotten that, it, that the world isn't just online. Yeah. And so storytelling yeah. can, can be anywhere. What, what for you has changed in your storytelling over the last two years since you last talked? Well, what's really, really interesting to me is, um, as you know, I speak a lot around the world. Um, I've been, I've delivered presentations in 46 countries. I, I love it. I love storytelling from a stage. Absolutely, totally love it. Um, and at one time, I thought that, conferences, physical events, you know, um, um, the association conferences or companies that sponsor conferences. I thought that that they were going to um, shrink. I didn't think they were going to disappear, but I thought they were going to shrink because of the power of online storytelling, because you can have virtual conferences, because you can do webinars, you can do um, other kinds of virtual ways of bringing people together. Mm -hmm. And um, I was kind of worried about that because um, I love getting on an airplane, going somewhere new, speaking to an audience, engaging personally with members of that audience after I get off the stage, going to lunch or dinner or cocktails or breakfast the next morning with those attendees and talking with them. But what I've found is that that's actually become way more popular in the last couple of years. 
And I think it might be because of what I observed, which I just mentioned is this idea that, that there's so much superficial stuff going on in the online world that people are looking for that genuine human connection. And you can actually have a genuine connection in a physical event. So even though, sure, you can go to a virtual event, you can attend a webinar, you can check people's um, blogs and podcasts and, and, and social networks out to learn things, people are still spending a thousand bucks for an event ticket and um, six or 800 bucks on, a, on an airplane ticket and six or 800 bucks for a for a hotel room and, and meals and parking and everything else, you know, all in $2,500, $3,000, $3,500 to go to conferences. Um, plus almost a week out of your life. Right, right. <laughs> um, and and I, I do think that comes back to the power of that genuine human connection of being together with like-minded people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's nothing like it. And, you know, even not at the time of this recording, not too long ago, connected again at uh at an event in boston and that that yeah. in-person thing man is so it is so powerful because as much as you can tell stories over the airwaves that face-to-face that handshake that fist bump whatever it is is so powerful it's so powerful and yeah. um i got so interested in this dan this idea of where we're going next and and um you know this observation that i had that um i focus on on fans why do we become fans of something and i was driving in the car with my daughter reiko she's 26 years old now so she was 21 years old five years ago and i you know we're just randomly talking about how weird fandom is and i'm like (laughs) it's just really weird that i've been to 75 grateful dead concerts and she said i know it's really weird how much i love harry potter i mean she told me she's not only read all the harry potter books multiple times seen the movies multiple times she's gone to florida to the wizarding world of harry potter she's Mm -hmm. gone to london to visit the studios and she wrote a ninety thousand word alternative ending to the harry potter series published it on a fan fiction site as a novel it's been read thousands of times commented on hundreds of times and she's like i really dig into this harry potter thing and so as we were thinking about fans and fandoms and these obsessions that we've learned everybody has obsessions about something or other we're fans of something sports um, either that we play or that we watch music in my case um, gardening birds um, you know classic cars I mean just there's so many different things that people become fans of but what that really does that fandom as we, we, we literally spoke with hundreds of people about fandom and, and did research on, on thousands of people about fandom and eventually became my new book called Fanocracy. But what we learned is that the thing you're a fan of is important in your life, but in many ways what's more important is the genuine human connection that you have interacting with people who share the same fandom. So I think you know, Dan, that... Um, Brian Halligan and I met, the CEO of HubSpot and I met because of our shared love of the Grateful Dead. 
Yeah. Um, we have, in, he and Brian, after we got to know each other through the Grateful Dead, invited me to join the HubSpot Advisory Board. We eventually wrote a book called Marketing Lessons from the Grateful Dead. We eventually probably have gone to maybe a hundred shows, not just Grateful Dead, but other shows together in the 12 years we've known one another. And so this idea of shared fandom, yeah, it's about the music in my case, but it's also about this, um, desire to interact with like-minded people because ultimately that's some of the most rewarding relationships we have in our entire lives. And, and, it's, and it's a basic human emotion to want to belong, right? Yes. And so when yes. you find those fans that you can interact with of whatever it is, um, much, much like Reiko, my, my oldest daughter has read uh, the Harry Potter series uh, more than 20 times each book. Oh my gosh. Um, and is a wow. huge fan. And so, huge. yeah, but then, and then my younger daughter is a huge fan of anime. Yes. And so she's starting like an anime club at school and stuff. So it's, it's incredible. It's a human desire to connect and belong. It is. Um, how, so, it is. so I want to ask in a minute here about working with Reiko, cause I can only imagine working with, 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 either of my daughters would be amazing, but I want to, I want to stay in this thing for a minute here. Um, when it comes to that connection, uh, how does story itself play into building that fan base? Right. So, um, we looked at that really, really, really hard. Um, and that particularly, uh, came through Reiko. Um, we, um, uh, uh, some backstory as we were deciding to write this book, um, we, we hired an agent. We got a book deal with Penguin Random House, the portfolio division, really great group of people. They work on um, Seth Godin's books and Simon Sinek's books. Uh, so we're working with a really great team. And um, one of the challenges that we had was uh, as a co-author team, do we, um, do we write in one voice or do we write in two voices and my voice and Reiko's voice are unique. And we actually went down the path of starting in one voice and it just didn't work. And we ended up actually share, sharing the task of we, we, I wrote one chapter, she wrote another chapter, I wrote another chapter, she wrote another chapter. Um, and, we, and we named who wrote that chapter. So it's the name of the chapter and it says by David or by Reiko. And, um, What's interesting about Reiko, a lot of things are interesting about her. Not only is she obviously a different gender, obviously a different generation, uh, has a very different set of fandoms than I do. Um, she's mixed race, um, and she also um, is a scientist. She did a neuroscience degree at Columbia University, and she's now in her final year of medical school at Boston University. She's going to, she's right now, as we're recording this, applying for her residency program, which will start next year. And Allison, uh, I'm sorry, Reiko, she's, she's using her name Reiko for her writing. Um, Reiko is um, really, really into a new medical uh, concept called narrative medicine. Hmm. Narrative medicine came out of Columbia University where Reiko studied. And it's basically the idea of understanding a patient's narrative, understanding their story, understanding not just the symptoms of a patient, but understanding deeply who that patient is. And, um, and narrative medicine specifically looks at some of the, the very powerful aspects of storytelling 
and also the power of narrative as it relates to fiction and poetry and other forms of narrative. And, um, and she told me that this, is, this concept is just so important to her as she's been studying to become a doctor. And she talks about an example. She actually wrote about this. She's a beautiful writer. She's a way better writer than I am. <laughs> um, she's a beautiful writer. And she's told this wonderful story about a patient she named him Jeremy, um, not his real name, but Jeremy uh, uh, is a patient su suffering with a form of blood cancer. And as, as Reiko was interviewing him about um, his disease, she started to ask very probing questions, not about the disease itself, not about the symptoms, not about how does he feel or what time does he go to bed, but about him as a person and learned that he's an artist and not by profession but by his passion he's mm. a fan of art and he's very passionate about his art and he told her after she got him talking about what she's what he's passionate about jeremy said um you know as we're thinking about how to uh, manage my illness i want you to know that I'm, I, I just want to live so I can create art. Mm. I don't want to live just to, for the sake of living. I don't want to be roasted on a spit to live another few months. If I can't make my art, then there's no reason to keep trying to keep me alive. And so it's just an incredibly powerful concept when it comes to medicine, the story behind each individual patient. And so Reiko got so excited about this concept that she's actually now teaching a course at, uh, she goes to Boston University. So she's a student there, but she's also teaching a course yeah. on narrative medicine there. And it turns out that the same idea can be applied to all businesses because the more we understand the individual stories of our customers, as well as the collective story of our customers, the more powerful the stories that we can tell them are. Um, and I think that is a lost art. I know you're, you're a huge, huge fan of this kind of thing. I know. And, you know, this podcast is trying to get these ideas out there, but I was really surprised that, that, actually in medicine, these ideas are working. Yeah. Well, when I read in, even just in Reiko's introduction, I think it was when she talked about the creating that syllabus for uh, BUSM and, and the quote that she shared was, you can't work with anyone if you don't know who they are and what they love. Right. And, it, and it blew me away. And it's like, you're reading my notes here because that was something <laughs> I want to get into is like, that is so amazing how, how story and, and just our, our own personal stories and, and what they love. And the fact that he said, instead of saying, I don't want to get so sick that I can't walk or something like that. Or like, I, you know, I, I want, I want to live to create art. Yes. Like that tells so much more about him. So that narrative medicine thing is just incredible. And the interesting thing that is, unless you probe for that, a patient won't reveal that. Mm -hmm. because patients are taught that the doctors are the experts and they put, you know, they take tests and they take your blood pressure and they pro poke and they prod and they know that they know what's going on. But until that doctor or my, my daughter's uh, case, 
medical student takes the time to truly understand the patient's story, the patient's narrative. Mm -hmm. And this concept is called narrative medicine. It's just, just now uh, starting. Um, it was started in Columbia University, I think about six or seven years ago, mm -hmm. um, uh, just now getting going. And it's an incredibly powerful concept that all of us can use. We, we actually coined a sort of an offshoot of that called narrative professionalism mm -hmm. uh, as a as a professional a doctor um, uh, obviously is doing it around narrative medicine but uh, a lawyer or an accountant or any other profession can use the same idea the same idea of narrative so if you're a tax attorney you know, don't just talk to people about their taxes, ask them about their life, you know, ask them about what's important to them. And, and all of a sudden they open up. And incidentally, incidentally, the, the, the added benefit here mm -hmm. is that those people then become your fans, right? If you're the tax professional that all of a sudden you're talking to your clients, not just about their tax situation, but about what they love to do and where they took their last holiday and um, the fact that they're really, really into bird watching or whatever it is, mm -hmm. all of a sudden, um, all of a sudden you as that tax attorney become um, uh, a, a pa someone who's passionate about your individual clients such that your clients then become your fans. And it's a very powerful way to not only grow business, but also to keep the business that you have. And so few people actually do that. And it, and it feels like you're like what we're kind of talking about here is a, a, a curiosity, a true genuine curiosity that you become a fan of, who will eventually become your fans first, right? It's like a mutual or a, not a mutual, but, a, but an initial respect, initial curiosity. I'm a fan of you. So I'm going to ask you about your life. And then as you tell it, you begin to get to know, like, and trust me and become my fan. And, and it's mutually beneficial. There's a lot of that. Yeah. And, 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 and here's an aspect of it that's often overlooked. Uh, and we found this to be true over all kinds of industries. And it's simply that, People who are passionate about something in their life make have a happier life, have a better life, and make better employees make and become better entrepreneurs. You know, the sort of all work all the time cliche doesn't really work um, to build fans. What works is if you're incredibly passionate about something in your private life and you share that passion with people in your work life. So um, one of the things that I love as a metaphor for this are the fact that, and I see you're actually doing it right now as we're seeing one another on the video, wearing a hat of something that you're a fan of. Yeah. I'm, um, I'm wearing a t-shirt of something that I'm a fan of. Yeah. People put stickers on their computer about something that they're a fan of. Yes, um, a and lot of stickers. <laughs> a lot of stickers, and I've got a ton of stickers on my computer. Um, and at, uh, and a, at the event that you and I were both at a couple of months ago, you know, probably, every third or fourth computer has stickers on it. And some of them has a lot of stickers on them. Mm -hmm. So, so um, these people wearing a hat with a logo, a t-shirt with a logo, stickers, putting stickers on their computer, putting a bumper sticker on their car of the things that they love are sharing with the world that they're passionate about something. Mm -hmm. I believe that 
we also should be sharing what we're passionate about on our social networks and sharing that passion to people in our work life. So I think there's a lot of people who have said, there's a lot of people who've said to me, David, you know, I'm not willing, I don't want to do that. You know, I, I'm on LinkedIn. It's a work thing talking right. about work. I'm on Facebook, but I only friend people I went to college with. It's where I keep up with my college buddies. Yeah. I'm not going to go out on social media and talk about the fact that I, um, you know, that I love to go to NASCAR races. I'm not going to do it. And I think that's wrong. I think that no matter what you're passionate about, that sharing the fact that you have that passion, you know, for a particular sports team or a particular genre of music or um, that you play golf or in my case, I love to surf and I talk about it all the time. I suck at it surfing. I'm not very good, <laughs> but I love it. Yeah. And I talk about it all the time. Um, that shows you know, in a way, twisting what your podcast is about, that shows your story. Right. You know, my story is, and in my case, that I love live music. I've been to 780 plus live concerts in my lifetime. I love to surf. I love the Apollo Lunar Program. And that's who make, that's what makes me who I am. And every one of those things I love to share in my working world. You know, mm -hmm. I, I share it with people I meet. I share those things on my social networks. Uh, and so many people don't do that. I think at their detriment, because ultimately that showcasing our humanity, our story is incredibly powerful. Especially, I think, if you're in those, what most businesses are, like if we think about business owners, most businesses are in that small to medium to medium large areas where we're doing business with, with people that we get to know, like, and trust, yep. not, not just a brand. And, and the people are that brand <clears throat> where I may not care who, I mean, although, well, I guess maybe it does, maybe this, I'll ask you this. I feel like I don't care if I'm going to a large chain, let's say I go to Applebee's restaurant for dinner. I don't care about who owns that company, but maybe Am I a fan of the server that I get every time I go mm -hmm. there mm -hmm. or the person who manages it that I know? I mean, any brand can come back down to people, I suppose, can it? And I can be a fan of that, huh? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so, absolutely. And we actually studied that as we were, as we were working on this book, came out, and we have some interesting examples of exactly that kind of fandom. Just the fact that if you're passionate at work, it's infectious, Yeah. right? So, so at Applebee's or wherever it might be, if the server is happy and bubbly because they live a wonderful life, because they live a life of passion, that passion shines through and naturally that person is going to attract fans uh, for that Applebee's um, restaurant because they're living a happy life and people react positive, positively yeah. to that. But if someone is just doing their job, you know, what's your order, bring you the burger, whatever it is, you know, it's not unpleasant, but it's not something that you can grasp a hold of. Yeah. And we interviewed a bunch of CEOs about how they hire. Hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of CEOs who told us that one of the most important things when they hire potential employees is, is that employee passionate? 
And so interviewing people for potential jobs, not based on the resume qualifications that you would expect, you know, do you have a particular degree? Um, what is your work experience? But instead, or together with focusing on what are you passionate about as a person outside of your business life? What, what, what do you, what keeps you busy? I, we enter, uh, some of these stories are in the book, Fanocracy, but one of the ones that I really loved was someone said her favorite interview question when she's interviewing a new candidate is the following. If you were in a room with a thousand people, what could you confidently say you are the best at? Mm. So it's one of those kind of almost like trick questions where it's getting you to think, but at the same time, if you haven't, if you're incredibly passionate about something and you're in a random room with a thousand people, I could say, there is no question that I'm going to know more about the Apollo Lunar Program than anyone else in that room. There is no question about it. <laughs> yeah, right. right. Um, you know, you, and I'm sure for you, you could think of something as well. Yeah. Um, but it gets you thinking. And then it also, it also then allows an opportunity for the interview to go down the path of what that person pa is passionate about. And that passion is infectious. Uh, you know, one of the, mm -hmm. we wrote it, but one of my favorite quotes in the book, passion is infectious. Can you find passion such that you are attracting fans by virtue of the passion that you have for something? Mm -hmm. And well, another quote that I found in your book, one of my favorites was when someone takes ownership of a brand they love, it becomes part of their identity. Yes. Like yes. That is so powerful. Yes. And, and that's no so... Question. So in this world that we're all, that we're so distracted, where like a lot of researcher experts say that loyalty wavers, nobody cares about brands anymore. Uh, we can jump ship in a hot second just because of whatever distractions or whatever we social thing we get on. Um, how does that? I think that's bullshit. Excuse my language. Do you? Do you? Yeah. Okay. Maybe this is a family friendly podcast, but no, I just right. said it. I, I actually, I actually think that's wrong. I think people can become incredibly passionate about a particular brand. And we've seen many, many examples of that in all kinds of industries, B2B businesses, mm -hmm. nonprofits, um, uh, even commodity businesses where people become so passionate, become such a fan of a particular brand that mm -hmm. they're, even able, they're even willing to spend more money or take more time to be able to use that brand than something that might be cheaper or easier. Now, the flip side of that is if you annoy somebody, they will leave. But as long as you stick with the reasons that that person joined in the beginning, it's incredibly powerful. Let me give you an example. Um, we've, uh, as I've been traveling around the world over the last year giving speeches, I ask uh, my audience the following question, who loves to buy auto insurance? <laughs> and the answer is always zero. I mean, there's no one in the room who ever loves auto insurance. Um, and that gives me an opportunity to talk about Haggerty insurance. Mm -hmm. So they're one of the um, stories in Fanocracy. And they are an insurance company that insures classic cars. And um, I, 
own a 1973 Land Rover and Haggerty is my insurance company. And I will stay state right here that I am a fan of my insurance company. Now, can you imagine, Dan, saying that you're a fan of your insurance company? Because it's a product that everybody hates. Mm -hmm. But here's what they've done to build that fandom. They go to classic car events where people um, are hanging out uh, over a hundred a year and they set up a booth and they provide education about classic cars, in particular classic car valuations. Mm. Um, they have a, a great content rich website. Um, their YouTube channel has hundreds of thousands of subscribers. Um, they, uh, they have online valuation reports. They have a magazine that they send out um, that, I, that I get. And, um, and um, they do some wacky things too. Like uh, at some classic car events, they actually will renew your wedding vows in your classic car. <laughs> and they, they, Haggerty employees acts as bridesmaids and groomsmen. They um, will photograph you during the moment and you can renew your wedding vows uh, in your car. I mean, this is an insurance company, right? An insurance company, Haggerty Insurance. And, you know, um, I, would, I would pay $100 or $200 more a year um, to be with Haggerty than to go with the other guy because I'm a fan, because I love the stuff that they provide me. Um, I love how they do business. I know that if I were to have an accident that they would be there uh, backing me up. Now, if they ever did anything to, to betray that trust, I, would, I could be persuaded to change my mind in a moment. Mm -hmm. But I don't agree that people are naturally gonna switch um, I think that loyalty goes a long way. I think that a relationship goes a long way. I think that the stories that those brands tell, if done well, goes a long way to building an organization that can be powerful for the long haul. Haggerty has become the largest classic car insurance company in the world, I believe. Um, they will grow by 200,000 customers this year. Wow. They have 600,000 members of their driver's club. <laughs> uh, I mean, they're doing fabulously well. They also insure. They're an insurance company. They you know, also insure. Like everyone talks about, oh, Apple computer. Everyone loves Apple. Well, right. Yeah, but what about an insurance company? If an insurance company can do it, everybody can do it. Absolutely. They also insure classic motorcycles. Yes, and then classic boats too. And they, are you a classic motorcycle fan? Um, I'm a motorcycle fan. Uh, okay. And I have friends that, so I have a, a, a an acquaintance who went on the, I think I think they call it the Cannonball for motorcycles or something to oh, that cool. effect. Oh, cool. And, and yeah, Haggerty's been a part of that. He, he was an insurance agent. So as soon as you said Haggerty, yep, I, I, know. Yeah. I know who that is. That's yeah. Awesome. Um, yeah, and, and so absolutely fandom is something that you can build. There's a prescription for it. We've written down some of the things that are within the prescription and mm -hmm. it's an incredibly powerful way to not only build business, but also to keep it. Yeah, absolutely. So let's go back to um, building that, that, that fan base and using story. Um, from where you sit today, uh, your vast experience traveling the world, talking to companies all large and small, everybody out there, how, 
how, how is storytelling out there being received by businesses? Has it become a buzzword? Is it working? Is, is story in order to build fans being well received right now? I think that um, there's so many people out there talking about storytelling and just scratching the surface mm -hmm. um, that in some places it's either not understood or, um, um, or people don't really know how to take advantage of, not uh, take advantage is the wrong, wrong phrasing, don't know how to use storytelling within their businesses. Okay. Um, and so you might have a company that says, oh yeah, 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 we need some of that storytelling stuff. Let's assign a junior marketer to do one day a week of storytelling. You know, mm -hmm. it's just, it's not gonna, it's not really gonna fly. Um, so, but I think that the organizations that can really grasp it um, are ones that can, um, that can do really well. And one of the things that we dug into that I think is worth spending a moment on around storytelling is the physical aspects of storytelling, sort of um, the idea that um, when you're in close physical proximity with somebody that you like, um, that you trust, it's a very, very positive, powerful emotion. Mm -hmm. um, same thing is true if you're in the physical proximity of somebody that you don't trust, mm -hmm. you know, like a crowded elevator, that can make you feel um, nervous or scared. Mm -hmm. um, that's a natural human reaction. And it turns out we studied through neuroscience. We looked at, we interviewed neuroscientists around this idea of proximity and how proximity is something that's incredibly powerful and can be built into storytelling. So let me explain what I mean here. Um, we humans are hardwired to want to know what's going on with the other humans that are near us. And Edward T. Hall is a, is a neuroscientist who identified four zones of proximity between human beings. So the furthest zone is called um, public, the public zone or public space. That's 20 feet or further away. Um, we don't, we, we're conscious of people that are that far away, but we don't really pay much attention to them. And I'm talking about the, the ancient brain, the part of the brain that we don't control, the un unconscious part. When someone gets within about 20 feet or so of us, like if you walk into a, a room and there's other people in the room, um, you start to feel unconsciously, you want to know, are those people friends or foes or possible mates? You know, your brain, your ancient brain is saying, do I need to be scared, fight or flight, um, uh, or are these people that I can trust that I know? The next zone is really powerful. That's this, um, and that's social zone. So from four feet to 20 feet, roughly, is called the social space. Uh, personal space, a foot and a half to four feet, the most passionate um, things happen there. Um, that's cocktail party distance. And this is hardwired into our brains. It's neuroscience. We can't help it. So what that means from a storytelling perspective is can you get closer to the people that you're telling stories to physically? Um, how much can you be in the, in the personal space 
of people as you're telling them stories. And you might say to me, yeah, 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 but you know, my business is such that I can't meet everybody in person. So it turns out there's another part of neuroscience that's really important for this as well. And it's called mirror neurons. And the idea of mirror neurons is there's a part of our brain that fires when we see somebody do something as if we were doing it ourselves. So I have a glass of water. In the glass of water is a bunch of lemon. Mm. And if I take a sip of this water, oh my gosh, the lemon, it's incredibly powerful and strong. It causes me to close my eyes. My lips purse up a little bit. It's un I can't help it. It's unconscious. My saliva glands start to secrete, I mean, powerful tart flavor. And I would guess, Dan, that you might have felt a little bit of that too. Yes. <laughs> and perhaps other people listening in may have felt that as well. As well. That that's, comes from mirror neurons. That's why if you go to a, a movie, um, you are, feel the same emotions that the, the actors on screens feel. You can feel sad or scared or happy or joyous, uh, joyful. So this is incredibly important as storytellers for this reason. The proximity I talked about before, the most powerful form of proximity is that personal space from a foot and a half to four feet of another human being because that powerful emotion when you're that close brings us together in a really, really important way as two humans. Through mirror neurons, if you use video and or photographs and you show as if you're in the personal space of somebody and you're telling stories through video as if you're in close physical proximity with somebody, that's incredibly powerful. So what that means for us as business people is how can we do more storytelling using video? How can we use video and purposefully crop it such that it feels like we're in close physical proximity with a person who's watching on the other side of the screen? This is one reason why selfies have become such a huge phenomenon, because by definition, most people's arms are four feet or less, <laughs> unless you're a basketball player, perhaps. But so you're shooting photos of yourself or you with other people from four feet or less away. And so it's a powerful emotion that you're in the person you are through mirror neurons feel as if you're the, in the personal space of those people who just took that selfie. And that's why selfies get so much social traction. You know, so many retweets and other things because we feel as though we're in that personal space of those people. You can use that in your storytelling as a way to build fans, as a way to build passion. That's an incredible mic drop moment. The whole idea that selfies bring us to that personal space and connect us that man and it comes from neuroscience it's hardwired into our brains yeah. that the humble selfie that people joke about and make fun of is actually a storytelling technique that can be used to develop fans mm. so good david i love that um so i i, I want to go back to at the very beginning, I wanted to ask this question and we got, and we got into this discussion. It's been incredible, but I want to go back to something as a, as a dad, yes. uh, how, how did it feel to create this great thing, this book 
with your daughter, with someone that you're so close to? So it's brought us to way closer together in a lot of interesting ways. Um, it allowed us to build a lot more trust among each other because, you know, I'm the dad, she's the daughter, but we're co-authors on this book. You know, we have equal billing on this book. Um, my name begins with D. My name went on top. Uh, her name is R. So she came second. Um, uh, so, um, we are co-authors and so i had to learn that her voice was equally strong to mine we had to learn how to give each other criticism in such a way that it makes the book stronger but doesn't um uh you know annoy each other um and um we found a, a real a real rhythm to the way we researched and wrote and I respect the fact that she's a better writer than I am, even though I've written, you know, this will be my 11th book. I'm known as an author, you know, she's my daughter on her, on her debut book is better writing than I am. <laughs> um, and, and also I recognized, and this is actually why I brought her into the project, recognized that the voice of a, of a, of a millennial woman who loves Harry Potter whose mother is Japanese, who um, has a neuroscience degree, is just as valid as a, you know, middle-aged white guy. Yeah. And, and so making sure, and this is, this goes real, this is really important for storytelling, Dan, you know, um, there, you have to understand the stories of all different types of people. And if I had written this by myself, it would have been from the perspective of a middle-aged white guy, but I didn't. I co-wrote it with a mixed-race millennial woman, mm. and that was fabulously powerful from the perspective of storytelling to understand that there are different types of stories based on who a person is. Um, and so I think that this has been it's certainly the most powerful moment of our father-daughter relationship, perhaps outside of when I saw her being born 26 years ago, but, you know, incredibly powerful. And I, and I hope with your daughters that you can figure out an equally interesting project. You know, my, my, my wife, Reiko's mother, um, has been, watching and cheering from the sidelines but this has been something we've done together we've done many 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 things as a family and i've only got one daughter only one child many many things as a family of three but this has been really fun because it's just been the two of us yeah um that we've been able to share so is she going to go on uh, some book tours with you now and, and speak from the stage as well? We actually did a um, presentation together, um, the first one, and we're hoping to do another one. But man, she's at medical school is brutal. And then her residency will be brutal. So finding the time will be tough. And we do have a couple of book signings uh, that are that are booked. So that'll be really fun. And I'm hoping that she'll be able to do a couple more speeches with me because that's been really fun. Um, yeah. She's a novice speaker, so I, I make it, really easy i just invite her on stage ask her a couple of questions about what mm -hmm. it's like from her perspective and it works out really well that's cool i'd love to i'd love to see one of those one of these days um so before i get to my my last question david uh where 
I'll put links in the show notes, of course, to everything. But where do you send people to connect with you or to check out Fanocracy? What's the best place? Uh, so um, I'm trying to do with fanocracy what I did with newsjacking, which is come up with a word that people will remember that I can own. So I do own fanocracy.com. I chose the word because it's the power of when fans rule, just like democracy is the, the rule of the many, the fanocracy is the rule of the fans. Uh, so fanocracy.com, I'm D-M-S-C-O-T-T, D-M Scott on the, on the various socials. And I use my middle name um, in my business, David Meerman Scott, because if you Google me, you get me and only me. Mm -hmm. uh, if you were to Google David Scott without my middle name, you'd get a whole bunch of imposters. But Google <laughs> David Meerman Scott and you get me. And excellent. We'll put those links in the show notes. So David, on our first conversation, my very first episode of the Storytellers Network, your last story uh, that you'd want to tell if you could only tell one more was that, uh, that you chose your own path without a blueprint. And then you helped thousands of people with your work. Uh, my question though now, has that changed? If you, if you could only tell one last story, what would that be two years later? You know, what, what I keep coming around to, and we've, we've talked about this over the last 45 minutes, but this idea that if we live a life of passion, that it's a better life. It's a more fulfilled life. It's a life where you can make the most powerful friendships that you can, that you'll ever make in your entire life because you share something very important to you in common. And I think in our busy world that we all live in, in the world of business, um, it's, it's, it's easy to get caught up in just work, work, work. Um, you know, that's the nature of, the times that we live in, but taking time for what you're passionate about, no matter what it might be, even if it's a little bit weird, like for me, the Apollo Lunar Program or the Grateful <laughs> Dead, that really makes strong connections with people and allows you to live a better life. Great advice. Great advice. I'm a big music fan. And so while the dead weren't my jam growing up. I, I completely appreciate it. And that's been one of those things that's been fun to, to learn from you and to, to see that from you and Brian both. So oh, thank um, you. Yeah. yeah it's I get really, it. really important stuff. Yeah. Most recently um, I've saw three David Byrne shows in the same two week period. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, and so, you know, yeah, it might be obsessive to go to the sh same show three times in two weeks, but gosh, I love it. Um, yeah. So I got to keep doing it. Well, and as the same as it might be, it's also different each time because they're artists. Yeah. They do it differently each time. So that's right. That's exactly that's cool. right. Yeah. Awesome. David, thank you so much for making time for this. Uh, I, I'm, I'm excited the book is out. So folks, go get it. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Really appreciate it. Once again, thank you so much, David Meerman Scott. And thank you, Reiko, as well, for co-writing us with your father and just for being awesome because the book is really very good. You can connect with David and with the book uh, and with Reiko at the links in the show notes. Uh, if you enjoy the episode, share it with someone who could benefit from it. Social media, a personal email, sharing in conversation all help spread the word on these conversations with storytellers that I'm offering up. Let's change the world through story together, shall we? And if you want to share your story with me, go to thestorytellersnetwork.com to connect with me or email me directly, dan at thestorytellersnetwork.com. Be sure to subscribe to the email list as well for new episodes and insider information. 
Thank you for joining me on this journey. Until next time, here's to telling our stories and having stories to tell. Cheers. Thank you.